Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast. I'm Sarah Faruya from Sarah Faruya Coaching, and today I have a super treat for you. I believe there are many ways to lead a life, and everybody has stories. And today I have somebody who's leading life so brilliantly, creatively, and authentically. It's Kate Kamoshita. Hi, Kate. How are you? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm doing... Doing great. I'm excited for us to do this. And yes, I want to see how succinct two ADHDers can be on a podcast. <laughs> so in the in the pre well, this month is ADHD Awareness Month in October. So that's why we're doing this because Kate is an ADHD educator and learning consultant, and she's one of the most authentic people who is fully unmasked and is just such an amazing presence in the world of ADHD. Um, she has has diagnosed me as ADHD as well, although I self-diagnosed many years ago. And um, it's not something that I'm super, super like open about yet, but it's so clear. And as she said, I said, I like to keep things to about an hour. And she said, well, let's see how succinctly two ADHD people can do with that. So what you're going to witness today as well is kind of diversity and equity and inclusion in action as we both create space for each other to just be who we are and to to get things going but it's my job today to be the, the the timekeeper and to be the one who keeps the questions on track so with that in mind and here to celebrate ADHD awareness month this October I want to ask you the first question because this is season six of my podcast of the legends podcast you are number two and we are are asking about game changers. This is all about game changers. And I see you as really changing the game of ADHD for so many people. So many people are feeling empowered and educated by your stuff. But I want to ask you, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be a game changer? Or tell me a story about a game changing person that you know. Well, yeah, I think game changer, as we know, are people who recreate the rules let's say they don't break the rules because that's not the point we want to play fairly I don't think it's about cheating but as in her divergent we know the rules aren't made for me and so I need to create my new rules and live by them as we were talking prior my mom is also a game changer uh, she was the embodiment of a, the hippie generation and she stayed that way, I would say. Her and my dad were really into saving the uh, Victorian houses in the Bay Area. And she cared a lot. San Francisco. The San Francisco Bay Area, Mm -hmm. especially Oakland before it was gentrified as it is now. So really, like, I was born in the 80s during the Oakland. So that's like the peak of the crack academic there. And now it's, you know, quite nicer to live in Oakland but that's also due to my mom and she bought a Queen Anne Victorian and it was bright pink and they had turned it into a duplex and it had asbestos on the siding and her whole life was kind of restoring our home to its original glory and they also bought two houses for a dollar that were going to be destroyed and moved them across town And those are both standing Victorian houses as well. And I think the best thing my mom did talk about staying within the rules, she made our three blocks an historic district. So 
so that nobody could ruin the neighborhood. She, she just guaranteed that because once you get the historical standing, you know, you're safer and protected. And that included other houses being built in our neighborhood had to follow certain codes to match the neighborhood. Wow. So she sounds like such an amazing game changer. And just uh, her, Marina is her name. I didn't say her name. Thank you, Marina. So we're going to dedicate this episode to Marina. All right. So that is so genius. Like last, I love all things about interiors and, and style and, and architecture and interior design and everything. And last night I was coincidentally watching a TV show about an old Queen Anne that had been left derelict, almost derelict for, for years. And they were talking about the restoration and how much that it was costing. Now you said two houses for a dollar. I think they were a dollar each. Okay. So $2. Amazing. This one, $8 million. So... <laughs> You're sitting on a fortune there, Kate. <laughs> well, those are those are not the ones she kept. Those are just no. two she saved. Yeah. So um, actually, we do know one couple who lives in the one. It is they're not both Queen Anne's. One of them is, but they were sent for demolition. So she literally put them on the back of a truck and they moved them across town. Wow. <laughs> Which is still a thing, actually. There's somebody in Japan. I know her husband moves houses. Wow. And, and it's a whole thing. I, I mean, clearly there's a process to moving a, <laughs> a house. Yeah, but, it's a feat of engineering, right? Yes, but they did. They put it. I might even be able to set my, uh, her partner sent me the old clipping of the pictures of the cars being the wow. house is being moved so we do well, that have would be beautiful if you could send that to us but like what I hear here is and I can see this coming through you so much as well is that she had this really strong sense of <laughs> preservation and like if she wanted something then she would she would be the one who made the change there and you know wanting to preserve this neighborhood she found the way to do it like you know and I just love that and I wonder where from the co- through the coaching lens, there's places where I or people listening to this or my clients can be looking at something and think somebody should really do something about that. Oh, it's such a shame those houses are going to be demolished, isn't it? We should actually somebody my, should save those. <laughs> my mom did write a letter to Abe when she was here to to the now deceased uh, Prime Minister Abe because there is no good Samaritan law in Japan. Mm-hmm. And she found out about this while she was staying here because mm-hmm. and she she wrote Prime Minister Abe while she was here that they should create a Good Samaritan law because we need Good Samaritan laws for people to be able to help other people in need. So she's not, she's not a resident of Japan. She had her daughter here. And I think that's just how she'd do it. She was never afraid to write locals or even presidents city council members go to the meetings raise her voice fight for change oh that sounds familiar <laughs> and we're talking about the late prime minister abe who was yes. recently sadly assassinated okay so thanks kate she sounds amazing and i can see her spirit lives on in you and your work with adhd and what you're building and reclaiming for us, those of us who are neurodiverse and also for neurotypical people to be able to work with and enjoy us more and to impart their amazing skills 
and and the way they they see the world so differently through their lens too it's pretty amazing so i want to give you your um introduction so everybody knows who we're talking to here so kate is a professional educator and adhd advocate she's based in tokyo and is working to spread alternative educational routes and promote neurodiversity acceptance it's worth mentioning she's also promoting neurotypical acceptance in the ADHD world too. So please get in touch to discuss mentoring, consulting and speaking engagements or workplace trainings. That's a great thing for the future there. So she studied abroad in Italy for an adventure with AFS and this was the start of many international education adventures. She graduated cum laude from an American university in Washington, D.C. From, from the American university. That's the name. Thank not you. Un. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's very confusing. And everyone's like, we know it's an American. Which one? I'm like, the American. It's the name of the college. <laughs> Thank you so much for correcting that. The American university in Washington, D.C. with a degree in visual media. At AU, she worked in the study abroad department as a student advisor and went abroad to Prague and Cape Town. Since 2006, she's been living and working in Japan, learning about youth, education, Japanese and study abroad. She uses her expertise to help you find your path through education. So that's one of the arms of her business, which is kind of a little bit less well-known, but it's a word of mouth thing where she helps people to get into university. And she's recently helped my very good friend to get onto an amazing master's course in the UK. We won't mention names, but that's a brilliant thing she's done. And I'm always recommending her to people as well. But more than that, more recently in the last year, specifically, I'd say probably the last two years, but in the last year, Kate has been really, really coming out into the world, especially through Instagram and Reels, but also through her networks here in Japan and who's, what she's built around the world as an ADHD educator, influencer, and somebody who has an incredible impact in this area. I think that it's worth mentioning that in the last year, she has built her Instagram following from 300 people to 30,000 followers. And she gets an terrific amount of engagement over there as well. You can find her at learning.compass. Um, so she's having this incredible influence on people. And in the last year, she has also started up a number of courses. Um, the leading course, her flagship course is women and AFAB, that's um, assigned female at birth and ADHD. And she's about to launch ADHD Essentials for anybody, which is work, play, eat, sleep, which is educating us all about the, the kind of the pitfalls, the checklists of ADHD, and then how we can better resource ourselves and look after ourselves with ADHD. And these are, have proved to be incredibly popular and have a terrific influence on people. Kate and I did a, not a podcast, but a broadcast together last year, which attracted a lot of people. And we got so many messages in the background saying, thank you so much. I've realized, I thought I was coming for my son or daughter, but actually I've realized a lot of this applies to me. And we just wanted to really raise raise awareness from a DEI perspective as well, so that people in companies and 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 families can understand how to how to approach people with ADHD and how to talk to them and how to resource them and how to empower them in a world that's designed uh, for for neurotypical people. And there's no shade on that; it's just the way it is. And so it's a whole new set of diversity that can be included. And and Kate really is at the forefront of 
A, being absolutely unmasked, authentic herself in the world. And B, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> she's like almost, we, we still have to, like you said, we still have to, we still have to be in the rules somewhat, right? <laughs> we still I have think, to live in polite society. <laughs> I think, I mean, I was diagnosed, which we'll get into at 34 years old. So it's now actually in December, it will be six years. Yes. total since my diagnosis yeah but it took a long time to get here that's I feel also when people look at my Instagram oh but you've you're so accepting of your ADHD yeah. it took oh. a long time it's like, a process it's, yes it's, <laughs> ongoing <laughs> it's not so yeah and I still am human and still yes. have my trauma from from not fitting in these boxes or you know you've heard me a lot talk about being too much which I think was the insult oh, that was thrown at me. Oh, an orderly cue in the too much gang. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that one, it just gets thrown at you oh, a so lot. it's boring, isn't it? Yeah. And it, I feel people don't realize how hurtful they can be because if you hurtful. tell somebody they're too much, the automatic reaction is going to be to make themselves smaller yeah. and to just retreat completely. There is no, especially with ADHD, there's no middle ground. So it's either going to be too much or not at all. So. Amazing. Thanks, Kate, for clarifying that there. Um, but I'm just so very proud of you and so very thrilled to be kind of part of this journey with you and also to recognize me. So we can talk about this, your six years uh, diagnosis, which also came out of another big thing you did seven years ago, which you can talk about later. But on the subject of of all this kind of trauma and and hurt, but also joy and delight. Tell us about your childhood, your upbringing, and um, where you're from. I was born uh, child of the 80s um, in Oakland, California. As I said, probably at the peak of the crack uh, epidemic, and mm -hmm. especially in that part of town, crack was really huge. So I grew up in what would be considered in, in the ghetto. But my parents, uh, what do they say? My parents were the ones that made just enough money for me to be the poor kid at a rich school, yep. which, which comes with its own set of obstacles. But mm. I'm very grateful for it because I, you know how much I value education. And I do know that going to that fancy school did provide me with certain tools mm -hmm. that have led me where I am now. And yeah, since I didn't have that much money growing up for these extracurriculars and my friends would go on vacations. Right. They're like, you don't go on vacation. I was like, what's a vacation? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, I went on other friends. They took me as their like friend on vacation. My friend took me to Hawaii. My friend took me to Disneyland. Like I got to go on their vacations, but um, not to say we didn't have much, but we couldn't afford to travel. Yeah. And then somebody told me about study abroad. And I found, again, we talked about game changers within the rules. I found the loophole <laughs> in the system that nobody told you about. Yeah. And so one of my older friends, she went to Spain with AFS. And as soon as I found out you could study abroad, yeah, I was like, sign me up. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to go to France. I studied French for many years. France was full. I said, put me in Belgium. They said, Belgium fills up after France. I said, send me to Switzerland. They said, we can't send you to Switzerland. Or no, we can, but we'd put you in German-speaking Switzerland. They said, send me to Cameroon. They said, we cannot send you south of the equator because it has a different 
calendar. I said, okay, where can you send me where I can learn French? And they looked at 17 year old me and they said, we can send you to Canada. And I'm like, I don't want to come to Canada. Like, I was like, what is that? No, no offense to Canada. No, no, no I, I understand. Yes, I, I uh, want to get out of North America. That's yeah, I wanted goal. to yes. get far away. Yes. Also, they would have sent me to Quebec. And I know that people speak French in Canada, of course. But it, I also knew that I would not be probably as exposed. There'd be a lot of English speakers because it's a bilingual country. And no, it was Canada. It was next door. I was, was looking for a bigger adventure. So they said, you can go somewhere. And so I went to Italy and we had a magazine because <laughs> it was it was actually 1999. So it's kind of funny to think that they we were still using these like, pamphlets. So I was choosing between the Netherlands and Italy. And my brother told me to go to Italy, probably because since I had studied French, that I might actually pick up the language. So I studied abroad for a year at 17 which I know also delayed my ADHD diagnosis now. Ah, because you just get to be foreign. Well, because you had to develop executive functioning skills because you were away from home for a year and developed a lot of independence and the things that most, because if you get missed with an ADHD diagnosis in childhood, usually the first time you get diagnosis is when you go off to college because you're in an unstructured environment and the executive functioning skills come into play. You have to set your own schedule. But since I had already gone to Italy at 17 and had to navigate a completely different culture in a foreign language yeah. going to school, I one of the main things people get from study abroad is maturity and these development of these life skills and communication. So I do believe that helped delay and empower my skills as a learner and person with ADHD. But. Amazing. I think that's really great. And it's always really good to to note that people with ADHD aren't incapable. They're just in, uh, not capable of certain functions. Right. But those functions can be developed, but at a great cost <laughs> in many ways. I, I can give up. So executive functioning skills, uh, I'm, we're not going to get into all the technicalities of it, but they're basically what, the easiest way to be if they're in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And you can call them like the secretary of the brain. I like to say it's the brain that bouncer. You know, they're the ones checking IDs. They're the ones filing important information. So people with ADHD, their secretary is not good at their job. And the bouncer is either. Let's anyone in. Boost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or let anybody out. out. Yes. Let's everybody out of the club, which is why And we sometimes can... beats everyone up. Yeah. So we. <laughs> So you have to set. So this is like task initiation, prioritization, time management, all these very important skills in the professional world. That it's not that we're we we have what's called executive dysfunction, and that's why it is a disability too, because we cannot control it. The brain, you cannot make your brain do things that your brain is like. We're not going to do that. So you literally mean like at a neural level. This is why it's called a neurodiversity that things aren't firing quite the same. We have an interest-based nervous system, so we don't get the same reward as neurotypical people for completing a task. So it's like, I have to do the laundry. I'm going to do the laundry. I'm going to feel good about that. It's going to give me dopamine. And your brain secretary is like, go do laundry step, you know, and she kind of does. Uh, I don't know. That's very sexist. He, my brain secretary. They, like, they, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, yeah. they. 
they do all the steps in between that ADHD people think about where it's like, oh, if I do the laundry, I have to collect the laundry, I have to put it in the basket, I have to go downstairs. I have the, we, we see every micro step, which is why the brain says those are too many steps for a test that has no dopamine reward for me big enough. So I refuse to do that test. And if your brain refuses to do a task, you cannot make your brain do it. That's why you have to trick the balance, like bum rush down. I'm just going to do it right now, fast. Yeah. Yeah. Then- or, or I really need that particular piece of clothing. And if I don't wash it, then I won't have it. So then that makes the it- kind of, give, creates that urgency. Brilliant. Yes. So the urgency is, in th- so it's more, yes. So we actually literally do not get the same rewards from task completion. So that's why I could make an Instagram following with 30,000 followers in a year and be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't so hard. But we sat in the Looked bathroom. Looked hard to me. <laughs> we sat in the bathroom for the, in the dark for three weeks because we couldn't be bothered to change the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an executive functioning test because you have to get like a ladder, maybe a screwdriver. You have to find the right size light bulb and then... Again, in Japan, I have no idea how to throw away a light bulb. So I just have a pile of old light bulbs. Oh, God, I'm literally twitching on the inside right now thinking about all those tasks. But Kate, tell us a little bit more about little Kate, like young Kate, and how you slipped through the ADHD diagnosis cracks there. Um, Because I can look back on little Sarah and be like, check, 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 check. But I'm so clever. Oh, yes. Well, that's especially if you are highly intelligent in the in the acceptable academic world, because I believe intelligence also comes in many forms. I don't really like to use correct smart and not smart. But yes, uh, academically smart. Like, But I also grew up in a family of neurodivergence. My brother's ADHD, both my other brother, my dad's accepted his ADHD diagnosis at about 77. My mom was definitely ADHD as well. And this is a lot of people who came to our talk or later on, too who said, well, that's just normal because everybody in my family can't change a light bulb. I'm like, well, that's not normal because plenty of people can change light bulbs. But if you grew up in a house where it was hard to do the laundry, where you knew your mom was going to lose your permission slip, where the joke was, I put it in a safe place, meaning we were never going to see it again. These were all normal behaviors. If you look back at my notebooks, I went home just this summer, as you know, so I was reading them. One, clearly I was very good at bullshitting. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> like I just would make stuff like I clearly would not read books for book. Like I read this and it was so obvious that I did not read this book and just made up something to hand in. Or I would make a case of why the book was boring and therefore I shouldn't be forced to read the book. And I'm not going to. And like stake it as my free will as a student to refuse it as I, you know, so I just would get that. The signs were one. I, I thought I was bad at math. Uh, this is a very big sign, particularly in uh, those assigned female at birth. I was not bad at math. Math was boring to me. Yes. Um, yes. So a lot of young, young people will be bad at math, but they're not really bad at math. They're just not taught math. Uh, in a way to excite them or you know it's like the exact opposite where they really thrive in the math class only yeah and then there's all the doodling in my notebooks (laughs) in all the notebooks oh I also looked at all these pictures of me I never had shoes on which I now think is a sensory thing 
I didn't realize then, but like, there's all these pictures of me all the time with no shoes on everywhere. And even my husband yelled at me the other day for walking out in our garden without my shoes on. That's very Japanese. Thing, I right? know. And I was it's like, leave. indoor, outdoor dealing. I'm it. always outdoors in my, with no shoes on. I know. It's like, leave me alone. Let me wear my bare feet out, especially my own home. And we discussed it, but that is a cultural. Yeah. Thing. That's where we have to navigate the rules, I think. Yeah. And then it's, especially when I got to know my sensory things, like I could never, I could never wear like watches or bracelets. I really didn't like them. I've always exaggerated time, but I thought that was just normal. Like, oh, it's going to take like five days to do that. And everyone's like, how long is it going to take? Really? I don't know. <laughs> five days, two minutes. What's the like, difference? Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> ten minutes. Yeah. Or yeah. my other friend in Japan laughed at me because she said, Kate doesn't know how to tell time. And I didn't know what she meant because like it's 1106 now. So if somebody asked me what time it is, I'd be like, oh, it's 12. And it's it's not that it's because for me, it basically might as well be 12, because by the time we get off this and I sit down to do whatever I need to do next, it's going to be 12. And it's called time blindness. But that was very clear when I was younger. And I did have interpersonal relationships, definitely some emotional regulation. But as a young female in the system, it was she's emotional. She's dramatic. She talks too much in class. I like this one. She doesn't follow instructions. That I feel that's on a lot of report cards for young kids. It's not that I didn't follow instructions. I don't understand your instructions. Yes, it's like Charlie Brown's mom on the phone or something. Wham, 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 wham. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I love there's a there's a Twitter, there's a tweet. I think it's Jesse Janderson is his name, and he goes, ADHD is constantly being told you're doing it wrong even though your way also works. So that creates what's known as CPTSD, right? Which is um, complex post-traumatic stress syndrome. So let me just flag that quickly and then you can talk about how that relates to you because you mentioned trauma earlier. So PTSD is when a, what, a massive event happens and then from that event, um, you create some kind of trauma response. So post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so that could be, I mean, it came out of the world wars. So it, it, you come home, you hear a door slam and suddenly you're in complete trauma thinking that you're back in the, in, in the field. That's a very, very simple way to put it. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder is, is when you've had lots of little things happen to you. So it's like death by a hundred paper cuts. And this creates this kind of trauma where you don't really know what's true and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong. You think you're wrong. You think there's something wrong with you. And so you have this very highly developed physiology where you're on high alert a lot. You're highly vigilant. You're, you don't know what's going on in relationships. You may go from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. You don't know whether you can trust things. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in it. That's why it's called complex PTSD because there's no specific thing. It's just this constant drip of being told you're doing things wrong. You're too much. You're too extroverted. You're too eccentric. It doesn't concentrate in class. So you're just constantly getting told off and getting these signals that there's something wrong with you. Lazy. Bone idle was the one that I got a lot. I was like, oh, bone idle. I was busy. <laughs> yeah, or it doesn't pay attention. Uh, I think the worst for me was when I would get called selfish. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Self selfish, ungrateful child. Yes. Yeah. 
I am not selfish. No meaning. I'm just going to break. I will use this because, uh, and that would confuse me. Yes. About why am I being called selfish? Because if anything, I am overly generous uh, with myself, with my time, with my loyalty, which is also part of this people pleasing is CPTSD and recovering neurodivergence, recovering perfectionism. But it was because of how I would talk to people, how I would communicate, where I would tend to center stories around myself because that is how I could understand them. So somebody would tell me a story about themselves and I would return with a story about myself. To and connect. Then, yes. And oh, me be, too kind of feeling. Yeah, oh, that I understand you. And here's yeah. a story about how yeah. I understand you. I got he, your story. So here's my story to tell you that I got your story. And it's like, oh, back to her. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. I told you they said to yeah. me. Anyway, anyway, back to me. That was the joke. Yeah. With me, which was not a joke. No, it's not. It's not funny. Well, I, even I laughed at the time because I didn't know. And uh, I'm a Leo. So I'm also like, I'm just Leo, center of attention. And I believed in astrology and still do. My mom also did. My mom got my chart done right when I was born. I'm actually a Leo, Leo rising Aries moon. So for your astrologer listeners out there, that is a lot of fire in my three dominant signs. Mm-hmm. So for me, sometimes I was like, I don't know if it's ADHD or if it's just that I'm a triple fire sign. But it is these over dramatic, selfish, self centered. And I mean, I was clearly a risk taker. I went to Italy at 17, no questions asked. Um, my parents also got divorced when I was six. And I literally went back and forth between their houses, basically 50, 50, because they both lived in Oakland. It'd be like Sunday through Wednesday, I'd be at my mom's, and then Saturday, Wednesday through Saturday, I'd be at my dad's, which is nice that they were both involved, but it's kind of exhausting to go back and forth between yeah. two houses. That's a lot of traveling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think they just, they did a good job of not bringing any of that in front of us very much, any of their disputes. And the biggest thing always was just the education, that I be at school, that I get a good education that even if we can't afford it, they're going to private schools. We just think that was my mom's big, she would not budge on that. But then, yeah, little, I'd say also just, I had two older brothers too. So if that comes into play, divorced childhood, two older brothers, I was just, yeah, I was a fighter. You're the baby and only girl with two older brothers. Yeah, I had to fight. I had to be very loud. They would start picking food out on my plate before I was finished eating. So I had to, I learned how to hide food for myself, which is something I still did up through drinking as well, because I can't eat if I'm overstimulated or excited. So at parties or things where you're supposed to be eating, I would always collect a little plate of food and hide it for myself for later. That's so clever. Well, it came from lots of nights of not eating anything and being very drunk. That's so interesting because my husband often doesn't, he'll come out of a buffet like that. I'm so starving. And I'm like, there was a buffet. I had three plates. I'm not starving. (laughs) It's 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 hard to eat in the party or if there's a lot of choices and or I was drinking or talking. That's a sensory issue with food as we'll talk about 
So, and then part of it also probably came from the scarcity fear because my brothers were literally picking food off my plate while I was eating. Yeah. I mean, that's Uh, just the stuff of, that's the stuff of families is that's the stuff of family folklore everywhere. I'm sure this is really interesting Kate. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this going, Oh my God, this is me. All those things that happened there. And, you know, I think one of the missions for you and certainly for me, I don't speak for you is that as soon as people start waking up and, and, and realizing this about people that they can broaden their margins for people with all this kind of energy and harness it during class time. I've seen some teachers do really good job with like the super ADHD kids who are like, you know, bouncing off the walls and stuff like that and just helping them to be included in class. But it's, it's those people like you and I who kind of went under the radar because it just looks like, yeah, being selfish or self-centered or me, 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 or dramatic. lacking attention or dramatic. I mean, God, this is the playbook. This is the playbook. Uh, and because and, and also, was, yeah. And well, I was going to say, <laughs> and because that I was really smart and I did well at school, that's where for people with ADHD, for many of them, they, they, they will hear all the negative things about them or not be able to do school. And that will cause problems for them academically. Yeah, because they're always running late. But for me, as I said, since I was good at bullshitting, I could pull something out of my hat at the last minute. And also, um, because I am academically smart, I I went the other route of overachieving and perfectionism, right. where I could get validation from getting good grades. I could get validation from being smarter than you. I could get validation from being able to write better than you. Yeah. And because I was being put down in other areas of my life. And I tell this story a lot, but it is a ridiculous story. And one of the first ones that really made me be like, you need to get your perfectionism under wraps because I graduated this. Now we're flashing forward to 2021 and I graduated uh, Sophia with my master's degree. My mother died in July, 2020. I came back to Japan. I had to put my head down and finish my thesis. I wrote a thesis. I graduated Michigan State with a youth development specialist certification. I graduated Sophia. We bought a house. We moved. I started this business while working during a pandemic after the death of my mother and with two kids. And when I was talking to my counselor, I said, yeah, but anybody could do that. No. (laughs) I, I know that. Yeah. But that is... That is, I thought anybody would be able right after the death of their mother to finish two master's degrees, move house while working with two kids during a pandemic and be able, not only that, have a very well-received thesis that one of the leading, I did a comparative thesis, comparative case studies, and one of the leading researchers of comparative education told me I basically knocked it out of the park. These are high out. And I said, anybody, anybody could do that. What I did was not that special and as soon as I say it out loud I knew it was a lie and I use that story as an example a lot because it shows how much perfectionism even with people with ADHD because one uh, people didn't expect me to do these things such a liar perfectionism is it's such a it's it's such a idiot (laughs) perfectionism is but I think also I think that the to note here is this um, as you're saying that, I'm also inclu- imagining that CPTSD, complex PTSD is sitting next to all this. So you've done all that stuff, 
but you're just waiting for that one person or those two people to come up and go, yeah, but she was going on about herself when I had a conversation with her the other day, right? And that's like, that's absolutely devastating to somebody who has ADHD. And there's a comorbidity, isn't there, that goes with ADHD. I wonder if you want to speak to that a little bit, RSD? Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's um, so there's rejection sensitivity, dysphoria. People debate the dysphoria. We can yes. just say rejection sensitivity. sensitivity yeah. Which uh, we I say it's this. Yes. They, somebody said you cannot create a neurodivergent who's not traumatized, which we're talking about. And RSD is a perceived rejection before it happens. So we can hurt our own feelings. Basically, oh. real or imagined scenarios can hurt our own feelings. The example I like to use in my classes is what do you do when an authority figure or somebody like your boss writes you an email and it just says, hey, I need to talk to you. Could we schedule a meeting? And everybody- I'm going to get sucked. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. like, I'm going to get fired. Something yeah. horrible happened. Yeah. And, and usually they're just like- mistake. And it's generally not that. Or when you meet a, pers- a new person and you think they don't like me. Don't Before like you've me. met them. <laughs> yeah or you talk yourself out of doing something before you did it you can't bear it it's too much now I read something interesting about this recently actually Kate and it was something like just the thought alone is so overwhelmingly painful like you said you hurt yourself before that not doing the thing is actually because you're already overwhelmed with just the thought so it's not like it's like if somebody had just run a marathon and they need to lie down. You've already run. You, you've already thought. Just the thought of running the marathon has made you tired. And something the, like that. And the RSD can come up even when it's something you needed to do. Or like uh, last year when I quit my job, I experienced this rejection sensitivity. Yeah. Because quitting my job was the right decision. I did sort of rage quit because things had been piling up. Yes. that I wasn't addressing. Yes. And then I felt very ashamed and embarrassed of my actions that led to that. I quit because I wanted to quit and it wasn't the right job for, it was the right decision. So that's what I'm saying. Even if you make the right decision in the right time, even if it's not maybe exactly how you planned, well, then that's all you're stuck on. Yeah. Well, well I did it wrong or now they're going to think poorly of me because I quit. Quitting is hard for people with ADHD also do not like to walk away from things then they oh, feel they're because failure. you get called a quitter yeah. yeah you're a failure you're a quitter why oh. did you do it so it's sometimes harder for them to do that too which is also this rejection sensitivity or perfectionism and just for the other kind of perfectionists on here this is very important to note for people with ADHD I am the overachieving perfectionist who never does good enough which can lead to burnout but the other side of that is people never starting things at all yeah and that's important because they don't finish or they don't produce or they don't start because they are waiting for everything to be perfect. Perfect, which it never is. And of course, that can then lead to poverty and to, into poverty cycles because you just can't get you you can't get over that that hump to do things. I think that's a really, really good point. So you know, you never know a lot of people who you see who aren't doing so well in life it could be ADHD that has taken them down so I'd like to talk about that because I think that um, closely relates to addiction Mm -hmm. and if you don't mind speaking to that a little bit um, Kate because what can happen and I certainly 
observed that among people is yeah self-medication yes well Dutch courage (laughs) well there's two things one as we know ADHD as I said nervous based interest system but also it has to do with dopamine neuroepinephrine and serotonin which are the happiness serotonin is for happiness neuroepinephrine you would know as adrenaline and dopamine are the feel-good reward hormones dopamine is what people get addicted to that feeling of addiction and there's a few theories that are both of them are so adhd because we really don't know so the science is still out but the two theories we have is one either our dopamine receptors are just really good at their job and like overly excited so when the dopamine gets released they just like absorb quickly just absorb it too fast so they're like like, stop stop i need to do the dishes but wait i didn't get it yes so uh they're overly efficient yeah uh, the other theory is they get distracted delivering the dopamine. I'm like, that can't be real. <laughs> <laughs> so hang on a second. So our cells are also ADHD. Basically, yes, that that the dopamine, the, the neurotransmitters themselves seem to have ADHD because they either get distracted or they do too much. Oh, that's so fabulous. I imagine my cells in my body like trying on feather bowers, wandering <laughs> off and like being like, wow, wait, wait, wait adrenaline, <laughs> adrenaline, come back here. We need you. <laughs> but um, things that give you adrenaline, serotonin and dopamine are also drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, gambling, uh, all of the above. Yeah. Um, and that's why addiction, there's high correlations with addiction, particularly with those who are undiagnosed because mm-hmm. the the I believe we talked about last year and there was that study that came out with the University of Toronto that said about 60% of people will have some sort of substance abuse or addiction problem mm-hmm. but the earlier it's treated the earlier people are medicated the earlier people are supported they are less likely to fall into the traps of substance abuse and addiction and this study was very groundbreaking not because of the correlations to the addiction, which everybody knew, which also makes sense. If you were lacking dopamine, of course, you're going to seek Seek out somewhere seeking dopamine. So that they knew that addiction was always a risk, but it was more the fact that if you're supported, if you're not being told that you're awful, if people are supporting you, if you're getting treatment, uh, whether medicated or not, but they did mention medication in the study because cognitively children of ADHD are about three years behind their peers. So if you do decide to medicate your children, this sort of helps that cognitive delay, which then provides confidence, which then is less likely to lead down the road of self-medicating and addiction. Ah, and so for somebody like me, so if I'm self-medicating and like every time I sit down to watch a TV show and think I'm a piece of shit or whatever it is, so I have a glass of wine, I might sit down instead and go, I'm a piece of shit. Oh, look, that's ADHD. Oh, well, that's, that's RSD. I, yeah, oh, and, that's fine. I don't need the wine. I can just, I just need to sit here and process this. Instead. Or you can have healthier ways of getting dopamine. Oh, I feel a little bad. I'm going to jump up and down on this trampoline for five minutes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not always the go-to. It's easier. Yeah. And the other main addiction and thing is with the essentials class, the eating is is binge eating, restrictive eating or that sort of extremeness with foods because food also provides dopamine yeah so let's talk about me particularly yes let's let's get into your story up until seven years ago two things one caffeine Mm -hmm. 
Caffeine is a stimulant. I started drinking caffeine at a young age. People definitely judge my mother for this. How are you letting your young daughter drink coffee? And now there's been studies that have come out that said that drinking caffeine at a young age and going to school can be as effective as taking Ritalin. So definitely self-medicated with caffeinated beverages because caffeine is a stimulant and it does help increase focus. So many people with ADHD might also drink a lot of caffeine. And if it's not caffeine, they could be smokers, could be nicotine. It's not nicotine, it could be sugar. These are all stimulants that increase energy, focus, adrenaline, serotonin. So caffeine was one for me. I really think that helped me get through school. And then I went to Italy and that didn't help my caffeine. I was like having withdrawals coming back from Italy because you just drink your espresso three, four times a day. I really, that was the first time I noticed a caffeine withdrawal because yeah, I mean, and it's so normalized in Italy to drink that much coffee. So that's a big one. I still drink a lot of caffeine. But that's socially acceptable, right? So that's one of those things where you can still move through the world drinking caffeine and not get arrested or not, you know, end up in a heap on the floor or... It, it is, but it's funny because then when people people who decide to medicate their children with stimulants or choose to take stimulant medication, they are met with the stigmatized version of that when they do... Act. So it's more, we need to look at caffeine in the sense that it is a stimulant. Yes, Same with chocolate. There's a lot of people because coffee, I mean, chocolate, I believe, have caffeine in it as well and the sugar. So some people don't like coffee, but they'll drink, they'll eat chocolate throughout the day to give them that energy. And that's also acceptable. But if you replace that with a stimulant medication, oh, then you're you're just addicted to drugs. Oh, I see. So I I was thinking more, I was thinking my thinking went more towards like alcohol or uh, yeah I was gonna I was gonna get to that too because for some people who can't just stick to the caffeine they will go to the harder stimulant drugs such as speed or cocaine or these other ones and that is there's a reason they're led to those drugs to self-medicate definitely and then alcohol as we know is a depressant and alcohol is also socially acceptable. Alcohol, to some degree. I think Japan is a country where it's very socially acceptable to be drinking, encouraged. Uh, California, te- I mean, again, it's all nothing, but, you know, the teenage movies of the house parties. Yes, absolutely. So, Kate, can you t- would you mind just, to, just talking to us about your journey there? Yeah, so I... I just started drinking. I think I always knew I was an alcoholic. I just didn't care. So for me, step I, I did get sober with AA, which a lot of people have a problem with. No, I don't. Um, I no, I just I don't have a problem with AA. Um, and step one it said, well, like I accepted I'm an alcoholic and that my life had become unmanageable. This step is important to talk about because. There's two parts to it, and people don't realize both parts. It's one was I acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic, which I told you I acknowledged that a long time ago. I didn't have any doubts about that. Probably even as a teenager, I knew that. But it's the second part. Then my life had become unmanageable. That's the part about step one that people don't really understand, that uh, you have to reach a part of unmanageability. And I would drink, and I was like, again, alcoholism runs in my family, but again, So if I was 
diagnosed gender, would I have had a problem with alcohol? Quite possibly, yes. Was I using it to self-medicate? Yes, I was. And um, I think it was because I get very excited. You know, the too muchness of me, the partier in me, this adventure. So you fall into that party crowd or the drinking crowd, and then you just use the alcohol as a mask or a socially acceptable way. And then it's not you, it's, it's the alcohol or you're drunk. And that is in some ways better than just being sober and loud and weird. Oh, that's so good. Say that again. So being drunk and loud and weird is acceptable, but being sober and loud and weird isn't. Oh, yeah, it's it, so good, Kate. So good. It, and even now, because I have the history of drinking and people meet me, they they always assume that I still drink. Oh, well, I thought you were a drinker. I was like, yeah, because, because I was and because this is my personality and I can still do that. But what happened was it would never last very long. My char- like I was not as charming as I believed I was as a <laughs> drinker. <laughs> and it's more the once you drink... And it's a lot of things with ADHD. It's all or nothing. It's the ability to stop. That it's it's all or nothing. It's not a couple of drinks of wine with dinner. It's might start that way, but then you're drinking much more. So for me, it was never an ability to limit my intake. And then I got pregnant and I stopped drinking. Uh, but then my son was born, and I realized how quickly I went back to drinking. And I, my, I was raised with alcoholics in my family, and I did not want to be a drunk mom, which also can give me grateful for the drunk people in my life because I successfully managed not to be a drunk mom, and I quit drinking. I mean, it took a year of my son's life, but he was young. Uh, he probably doesn't remember me no, drinking. No, he won't remember. And I was, I think it was 2014. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I glamorized my quitting drink. I have good stories about my, because first of all, I decided right after my son was born, but then it took a year of me of drinking myself into a stupor because it's a very alcoholic way to think that you can keep it with, like, you know, it's like, it's too scary to imagine life without it. So you, I don't, what was I going to do? Keep that year of drunkenness with me? No, like, but that's a very alcoholic way of thinking (laughs) that I was going to, so I was really drunk my last year drinking, embarrassingly so. And, oh, and then I was like, I finally got to the point I was going to stop. I started going to meetings, but it was earlier than I expected to quit. So it was like before Christmas. And I knew that I was going to drink that holiday season. I had that in mind. So I did get sober for about three weeks. And then I drank during the holidays. And this is the best thing. I bought like a really expensive bottle of champagne, really expensive bottle, like the $400 bottle of I wanted Dom Perignon, but it was sold out. So I got a $400 bottle of Krug. I was like, this is going to be my last drink. This one song. <laughs> yes, I'm going to go out because I love champagne. And I'm going to drink this really expensive bottle of champagne. It's going to be so. And then that was over New Year's. And I did quit for three weeks again. And then I sort of fell off the wagon again. And my last drink was actually a day old half drink in beer. <laughs> And then you went, so at that point, you realized that you needed the structure of AA, right? I was 
it's already in it. And I feel my first uh, falling off the wagon attempt, it was never, I wasn't taking it seriously yet. So okay. that's the only time I slipped up which, yeah. and it was very early in sobriety. So since then I went to AA, I started going more. I got a sponsor. I did the steps and it was during, it was, I think about a year into my sobriety or two years into my sobriety because I got pregnant during getting sober, which also people were super judgmental about that. They said, you're not really sober because you're pregnant. I was like, no, I did pregnancy as an alcoholic and as a recovering alcoholic. And they are very different things. Cause it did it. I feel maybe my son helped me. Maybe he came along in a certain time to assist me with those first months, but I didn't even know if I wasn't in recovery before getting pregnant the second time, if I could have remained sober during my second pregnancy or not. And I felt that was very rude when people would tell me that didn't Well, you count. know what? People just don't know. Do I mean, this is something that I've come to realize, especially through this, you know, talking to you is, and, and anything at all from being a coach and how upset and offended people get is we just have to let people be where they are with things, don't they? Don't we? Because it's the way that they make themselves understand the world. I think it's, it's really important to kind of allow that. It's I like, was sober before I got pregnant mm -hmm. and I had a pregnancy where I was had no intentions of being sober and a pregnancy where I was intentionally being sober and I would not compare those things. Ah, so totally different. And it, and like I said, I feel that where I was at my drinking at that point too, there could have been a good choice if I wasn't actively choosing to be sober that um, I could have made risky decisions during my second pregnancy, which luckily right. I did not. And it was after the birth of my second son, two years after sobriety, second child born, that finally my psychologist said, oh, maybe it's not just the anxiety. So I was going to just line this part up for, for the listeners, which is, and this is quite common, that a lot of women are diagnosed with anxiety or depression when it's actually ADHD. And this is this is what one of the places where Kate is having a terrific amount of influence on um, women and um, people assigned female at birth um, to access diagnosis or to, to seek alternative diagnoses. So... So from this sobriety, because the probably the alcoholism was masking the diagnosis. Well, it was this. We knew I was anxious. Right? I'm not going to deny my anxiety. But do you know what causes a lot of anxiety? ADHD. Undi <laughs> undiagnosed ADHD right. in particular. Yes. Because if you were constantly on edge on your perfectionism, on your overachieving, <gasps> Uh, on trying to make everything work and yet you have your brain bouncer who's asleep at the job or your brain secretary not doing their job taking any notes for you uh you're going to be on high alert high vigilance making sure things which which creates anxiety brilliant right so it's actually a symptom yeah amazing so and after your go on and so that for me, we knew the anxiety, anxiety doesn't even bother me. I still have it. They call it general anxiety disorder, which I just think is funny anyway, because people are like, what does that mean? And I'm like, just means I'm generally anxious. It's like my <laughs> just means like go in the shop, put my shoes on all create anxiety. <laughs> and actually, I think it's very important that we touch on this because I am not socially anxious. 
I've never been socially anxious because I'm more of this extroverted too much this person. So people would be like, oh, but you don't seem anxious. I'm like, yeah, this has nothing to do with social anxiety. <laughs> My anxiety is an internalized feeling or a feeling of dread or a feeling of the other shoe dropping or a feeling of just this constant overwhelm, which a lot of women particularly live in this constant state of chaos and overwhelm. So for me, the anxiety was just there. So I, I would accept that diagnosis. I wouldn't deny it. But it was when I got sober, it wasn't that bad. It was when I first got really happy after being sober, mm -hmm. right? It was, I got a new shiny, I got my electric bike with my two child seats on it. I had just gotten a new job. I had been sober for about like, I think it was like over a year at that point, or I think I just hit my two years. Uh, and I was just, I'd gotten this job. I got my bike. I was really happy. And if I'm really happy, that means I'm really excited. And I had that intensity of ADHD inside of me, which was an anxiety. That's just normal feelings of emotional dysregulation, of excitement, of these, these intense feelings we have. And I realized in that moment that the thing that made me most uncomfortable was happiness because it was too overwhelming and exciting. And that's when I would want to reach for a bottle to calm down the excitement. Mm -hmm. and Very good. I, and that's when I went to my doctor and said, this can't just be anxiety because this doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Said, oh, very good. So in tune said, with your body. So in tune with your body. And then, yeah, he said, yeah, I think you have ADHD. And I would say, like many people, I didn't believe him. I took the medication. I was like, sure. And then I took the meds and I was magically not anxious. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd say the first trait of mine that went away was the constant dread of anxiety and um for people who have, have anxiety who take anxiety medications those are also frowned upon by the way and when yeah, i got sober frown? yeah when i well when i got sober they would tell me your anxiety meds are just martinis in pill form and this really got me freaked out as a newly sober person and so then I got so anxious about my anxiety meds that I like started Googling and doing this deep dive into this. And then I took her test to see how anxious I really am. And my friend's like, you got so anxious over your anxiety meds that you went and took a test to see how anxious you are. And they're like, I was like, yes. She's like, what the test say? It's like nine out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> and the 10, by the way, is the social anxiety. I don't. Ah, yeah. Which I get, that's the only one. That well, this is, I just want to add something for myself here, which would come as an enormous surprise to most people, but I have terrible social anxiety. Terrible. But it's getting, because now I know all this stuff. It's like, it's so much better. Like now I know all this stuff. It is so much better. So much better. Um, so let's move on, Case. I want to bring us up to speed then. So you, so let me just kind of, summarize this part is you quit drinking you went into aa you got sober you then realized that these massive overwhelming feelings of happiness and joy and those intense adhd feelings were coming through and usually you would have self-medicated with a glass of wine and 
plus bottle later on. <laughs> but then now you, that that revealed your ADHD, you were able to get onto meds. So bring us up to speed of the last six years, five years since you had your diagnosis and, and when you started to realize you wanted to become an educator. Well, I guess then I started taking the medication. I got less anxious. I was working at this job in the high school. I realized I really like teaching high schoolers, which is something I didn't know. But it was that this all led to Learning Compass anyway, because I had to go back to school to get my master's degree in education. Right. And so I went back to school and it was that was very empowering because I went to school knowing I have ADHD. Do you know how much better you can do at school if you were diagnosed and then and I was in grad school, so I had never had any accommodations or teachers helping me or anything. And like, even if I didn't need the accommodations so much, they would let me record my lectures, by the way, things like that. Like they do that oh. or even my dueling in class or even my last minute rushes to finish things. Yes. They, they wouldn't be as scary um, or confusing because I knew what was causing them. So just yeah. you can make study plans if you do it. And then as we all know, COVID came and changed everything. And especially for people with ADHD, if everyone's saying, oh, everybody has ADHD nowadays. Oh, it's very trendy. It's so trendy. Neurodiversity. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It, it's trending because in 2020, when the entire world went through a massive extinction, which you call, which is true, which is this giant pandemic, which disrupted all of the systems, many women in particular didn't have a routine, didn't have a structure, and started to think about those intense feelings and how they were coping and a lot of them started to be diagnosed with ADHD. And that's how it came up to me. I was already diagnosed and starting to look at some people online or memes or my other friend got diagnosed similar, same timeline. We'd send each other these ADHD memes. But I'd say the neurodiversity education movement on TikTok and Instagram really took off during the pandemic. I think the, the statistic I read was like in 2019, it was like a 20,000 people took an online ADHD test. And in 2020, it went up to like over 200,000 people. Took an- <laughs> so it was, it was this breaking down of the system that people started recognizing ADHD. And the people who are getting diagnosed the most are adults, both men and women, or non-anybody people, but particularly uh, women or those who are marginalized genders, because during the pandemic, as you know, they had to take over family structures quite a bit just because yes. of how it works. Yes. And it was too much for so many and they couldn't handle it. And they finally sought answers. And the other thing was there are now more female psychiatrists, women of color, psychiatrists, more other diversity within the psychiatric field because I could go on forever about the problems with the DSM-5 being a cashit male patriarchy issue which is true and I think what's really important to also note is which we didn't touch on but now that I'm talking about the DSM-5 is the DSM the people who get diagnosed are the people who annoy other people the people who cause problems in the classroom, the people who pose problems for their parents, the people who are burdening other people, 
So if you're just burdening yourself, well, then you're not going to get referred to a diagnosis. Yeah. And for women in particular, or marginalized genders, people who pretend more feminine, this comes off as tiredness. ADHD makes you tired, which nobody talks about. But if your brain literally never stops thinking ever, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's because you, again, you can't control it. There's no off switch. I can't say, please stop thinking. Please stop coming up with thousands of ideas right now. I don't want to. And I know we've thousands of analyses of what's going on around you or thousands of solutions for whatever it is or thousands of pieces of information coming in. Stop Googling old starlit Hollywood eyebrows at 1 a.m. Stop that, Kate. (laughs) Why would anyone stop that? But no, I mean, I've been so overwhelmed before and now I can see this is ADHD and I've talked to my therapist about this as well, about how not to get, that I have been in a in a restaurant waiting for a seat, so overwhelmed by everything that I thought I was going to pass out and saying to my husband, I think I'm going to pass out. I feel like I'm going to pass out. I am that stressed out right now and I don't want to be this person, right? I, I don't thrive off thinking... Oh, I don't thrive off being anxious. I don't thrive off that. I like being a competent, fully formed, cool person in the world, right? I want to stand in a restaurant waiting with a glass of rosé in one hand and just looking fab, right? But no, I thought I was going to pass out. And I said to my husband, how do you feel right now? What are you thinking? And he just said to me, nothing. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, like... I'm but checking, it, I'm looking at the tables, I'm looking at the waiter, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at that. Get me a glass of wine, I need to calm down. But you're also, because you, you're already at the next step. Like, that's the thing, we're there, we don't. If you're waiting for the table, you're already there and you want to get to the next step, you want to be able to deal with the menu and make your order. And Oh my God, yes. You're you're just already on these other steps and Amazing. your husband is not there because he's like, I don't know what's on the menu, let me see. Uh-huh. Look I'm just waiting, I'm uh, like, I've been given my instruction and here I am, right? It's, it's, it's quite wild to think about that. That incident itself has been such a kind of pivotal, pivotal moment for me because I was like, I want to enjoy my holiday. I don't want to be standing here almost about to white out because I'm so stressed out about waiting for a table in a restaurant. Bizarre. And what's funny is that it's either that or the complete opposite, because I'm sure you've had times in the restaurant too, where you weren't on that hyper side of things where you could have sat there for an hour, just staring at the intricate mural on the wall, not even thinking about getting seated. Yeah, absolutely. And these two extremes are the problem with people as well, because if you live in a world of two extremes, because you can be on either end at any time, you will make excuses for the times that it's hard. Well, I don't do it all the time. So there must be something wrong. There must be that must have been a a freak accident that one time that I almost passed out because because this day I'm fine. I can look at. Yeah. That's but it's it's that you need to look at the whole picture. The other thing, as we said, for in particular, be like the DSM five is written for little boys in mind. We have to keep that in mind. It literally is written for little boys in mind. So the one that I think comes up a lot, which is uh, can't has trouble waiting their turn. So grownups will be like, I don't have trouble waiting my turn. And I'm like, okay. When you are in the store and the little old lady is taking out all of her change and and you're in that mode of 
hyperactivity. How do you feel? Like you're like, oh my god, why am I on this sword? And you get really come on, grandma. Come on, grandma. <laughs> or if you're if you're driving and you have some sort of road rage, road rage is yeah. a huge signal of not being able Idiot. to return. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or if you're waiting at a red light and you're just like, what is this like taking for? That's trouble waiting your turn. And or interrupting as well, right? Well, and interrupting, I was going to get touch on that because interrupting also comes in impulsivity and hyperactivity. Yeah, and also you're going to lose the thought quickly. Well, so, that's the impulsivity. That's why we want to get it out. And this is where diversity, equity, and inclusion comes in for me because when you and I are having a conversation, we allow the interruptions to happen or we're consciously pulling back. So it's like I don't then – now I understand not to judge people who constantly interrupt me, but to look at that as a kind of potentially, it's potentially part of something else that's going on for them. Unless of course, it's something more, more straightforward. Like, like mans uh, mansplaining. I wasn't, <laughs> what? What is this sorcery you speak of? But yeah, unless it's in a meeting and people are constantly being, and there's some kind of gender or, um, uh, you know, some kind of marginalized identity that keeps getting interrupted and pushed aside. That's a different thing. But just in a normal situation, I can now make space for that and understand what's happening and then try and pick up where I came back, came well, off. But I won't kind of, I won't well, that, make that mean friends. anything. So people with ADHD or neurodivergence attract other neurodivergence and they'll get in a room and it'll just be like people talking over each other. And somebody who's neurotypical might see this scene and be like, I can't hang out what with you hell? guys. Like, what's going on? And it's just like, this is normal. This is how we talk. Or I think also, and especially because of my role as a, my job as a coach is learning to make the space for people. So I've actually learned listening skills. And um, so that's really useful. And I make notes endlessly because if I don't make a note, then I'm going to in, instantly, I'm going to forget what I was going to say. So that's brilliant. But so I want to kind of bring this up to speed. Now we've covered an awful lot of stuff, technical stuff, stuff from your background, which I'm so, you know, thank you so much for talking about becoming sober and having your kids and all of that kind of stuff. But before I ask you to tell us where we can find you, what's the joy of ADHD for you? Because I, I remember sitting with you and Laura, my assistant once, and I said, like, I already knew kind of, I already knew I was ADHD. I'd already kind of been jokingly throwing that around. And I said to you both, like, do you think I'm ADHD? And you're both like, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in not so many words. And then Laura said to me, which just touched me so much. She goes, probably every single good thing, amazing thing you've ever done is because of ADHD. And I was like, I've got goosebumps thinking about it now. I feel quite um, touched by that. I feel really a big wave of emotion coming through. And I was like, oh my God, it made me have a lens on life, which said, this is my this is my shine. This is my, this is my light. And as long as I can start to move, I'm, I'm not as far in as you. And, and if, if we're talking about late stage diagnosis, I've only been diagnosed by you <laughs> and you're not a psychiatrist. So yeah. I can't go and get drugs. I, I do not diagnose people. And self-diagnosis, and self but you can say, I think that you present with the symptoms, but you mm -hmm. can't diagnose people. So it's like, you know, I, uh, you know, so I'm not sober. I, I, I still mask, 
Um, although that's becoming less and less and less and less, which is actually quite relaxing, but also I'm still in that kind of embarrassment cycle about that as well and vulnerability hangovers and stuff like that, but it's less and less and less and less. I'm kind of moving away from trying to mask too much. And I find it's just making me so much more stylish and shiny. I'm really enjoying that part I mean, there. talk about that. We were looking at me. And when I saw you, I still had all my brown hair. And now in the past year, and yeah. people have just, if those who don't, who are just meeting me now you can go through my instagram and see that i went from from my brown hair to pink to green to purple yeah. and it's so much fun when fun. you're talking about stylish and the, and well, the makeup choices obvious. the makeup choices and, and all of it and the more vulnerability on instagram the more creative my reels get so i'll get to your question i'll say but the joy what I have realized that my most powerful attribute to give to people on Instagram is to be exactly myself with all of my flaws and all of my insecurities and all the bad things about ADHD and not, and then go on to a very public platform and tell them the truth. Some of my most popular reels are when I show them the mounds of laundry that I have, which it's not that I don't find it overwhelming or embarrassing or that some of those videos that I make don't make me want to cringe myself but it's more that's how I can break down these masks by being authentic and the joys are one it is a very serious disability and causes a lot of trouble but again a lot of that comes out of uh, executive dysfunction of not having support of not people understanding of trying to navigate in a world in a system that works against you. And that's why the neurodivergent movement, calling it neurodiversity, moving away from this ableist speak and embracing how other people do it is important. And like you said, all the good ideas, because if that is what it is, we can, we're really good problem solvers. We're really good on our feet. But the opposite side of the intensity of emotional dysregulation and the sadness that we can feel is the complete opposite, is that we can get absolute joy yeah. that neurotypicals cannot feel in the same intensity. And for me, when the sun is shining and I have my headphones on and I'm in my park and I'm dancing in the park to a really good song and it's like, it's just as good as getting high. It is. <laughs> Because you get that much dopamine. And I know that that feeling of intensity of dopamine surges from a song in a park on a sunny day. Of course, those are things that will make everybody feel good. Yeah. Neurotypical or not, but it's not going to be that same intensity of joy. And the other thing I love, which I've just connected, talking about connecting dots later, I am hypersensitive to light. I've always been hypersensitive to light. It's like I like I literally can't see without my sunglasses sometimes. And I also look at everything because things are interesting and because I'm entertaining myself. And we've said it's not a deficit of attention. It's an abundance of attention. Of attention. Yeah, it's here, 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 here. Yeah, it's to everything. So I just realized that my first love of photography and studying visual media came from hypersensitivity of light plus abundance of attention to observing things and it was a practice of self-medication because it made me be patient, sit still, and have to actually control both those aspects to create photography. 
Listeners, we're having an online aha moment. <laughs> yeah, but it's... And, yeah. and so it makes sense that I was good at photography. If you can see everything and you're yeah. sensitive to light, why wouldn't you be? And that's the same way you hear people of misophonia or sensitivity to sounds who become amazing musicians or can pick up music just from listening to songs, which other people can't because... These are hypersensitivities that are both one overstimulating and annoying and two can can bring you gifts that other people can have. So uh, I feel also we need to stop competing in the neurodivergent world, too, of who has it harder, because I've also on the flips, I've been told, oh, but because you're that perfectionist or you went to grad school or you're smart, your ADHD is not as bad. And I'm like, my ADHD has nothing to do. It is what it is. That's okay. I mean, again, that's, that's from the coaching perspective, that's never about you. So I just drag and drop that stuff. It's fine. Let that person work through their stuff. They may come back in two years time and have worked on it and, and uh, be able to come back and be like, oh yeah, that was just me working through with, through stuff. But my Um, point is, you're these, your ADHD, because the other problem is when people go to a doctor or go to see somebody if a professional or somebody tells you that your ADHD is not severe enough for treatment, oh, this is a problem that's happening a lot. Oh, you're fine. You went to grad school. Oh, you're fine. You have a marriage. No, I you, see. You I are see the, the only person. world. I yeah, see. I've got it. You are the only person who can decide how much you are suffering with your ADHD. And basically, you shouldn't suffer at all. Nobody should. So even no. if you're struggling less quote unquote if you want help and assistance or to deal with your adhd through therapy through coaching through medication through seeing a psychiatrist through formal diagnosis uh there's no such thing as being too smart to have adhd there's no such thing as being too professional to have adhd there is no it is a spectrum of traits that's what it is people think it's a spectrum of how no it's a spectrum of traits so you could be hypersensitive to light but maybe can do your laundry like it's it's a spe- and it's not going to appear the same every day and so basically a lot of people reach a breaking point before they even start to get help yeah. or even ask any questions and i hope anybody listening to this who even suspects a little bit will realize what we've said that there's a lot of freedom and self-forgiveness and letting go of shame and guilt, even in self-diagnosis, but also you don't have to suffer to get help. That's not how help works. I mean, that's what happened to me. There was a particular incident that happened that then kind of I had therapy for a year, but there was a great deal of grief for me as well, looking at all the different version of myself who didn't know they had ADHD, who was getting called selfish, ungrateful, too much, too loud, eccentric, extroverted, distracted, unprofessional, job hopper, quitter, all this stuff, all that stuff that comes, and and that's the whole of my life, right? That's the whole first 50 years of my life. And it's desperately hurtful. It's Mm -hmm. desperately hurtful, but because this behavior isn't normally accepted, people feel okay to just hurt your feelings they feel like it's okay for them to simply hurt your feelings by just oh she's unprofessional so therefore it's fine for me to do this i've reclaimed excitement that was the one that people hurt me oh you why are you so excited about a rock 
Because it's a cool rock. I've used this it's example. It's millions of years old. Oh my God. <laughs> what are you talking about? How are you not excited about this rock? But yeah. I feel when I would get really excited or about an idea or anything, and I'd want to tell you about it. One, I've learned a few things. One, there there is a consent of info dumping, which I do acknowledge on my side. Consent, to, yes. To make sure that people are able, in a state of mind, to be able to hear. Receive it. Yeah. Excitement. But on the other end, my excitement doesn't harm people. No. So why was I attacked constantly just for being excited about life? And I've Beautiful. also just reclaimed that as my own. And that's why I think it's Elise Myers. She has a great part that if I am too much, go find less. Oh, if I'm too much, go find less. Thank you, Elise Myers, for that. And I'm going to say be excited about life as well. It's like be how like how annoying can that be to you that I'm so excited about life? Like, how is that so confronting to you? I said I've realized now it's because they do not experience that intense joy and it makes them uncomfortable. Same as you deal with the grief spectrum and dealing with sadness that makes yes. people uncomfortable it's the same for joy and excitement that that it makes they don't understand the emotion and it makes them uncomfortable but that is not something they should then put on that neurodivergent to carry the burden of so that is what i would say all neurotypicals people should just do some introspection about why does excitement and joy from somebody else make you so uncomfortable. Yeah, genuine, authentic, just, yeah, like that rock you were talking about. In that second, we just had that conversation. I saw that rock through billions of years. I saw it going around the planet. I saw it like that's how incredible our minds are. So with that in mind, one of the things I'm going to close up now. So there's no kind of answer to this. But one of the things that you you do is you can help people to advocate for themselves. So if people go through your programs or if people have one to one coaching with you, then they you can help people to advocate for themselves. Like you can point them in the direction of a good psychiatrist. You can help them to advocate for themselves in situations where they're being having experiencing pushback and you can help them to get a diagnosis. So where can we find you, Kate? Where do we where do people find you? So um, there's learning. Well, yeah. There's learning compass on Instagram. So it's learning dot compass, right? Yes. At learning dot compass, find your path. Cause we, sometimes we need help. Yeah. Getting pointed in the right direction. And you can join her 30,000 strong uh, <laughs> fan club. <laughs> and then my website is just my name, which is Kate. Kamoshita, K-A-M-O-S-H-I-T-A. There is not that many Kamoshitas in the world. Nope. And Kamo means duck and Shita means under. So I am the under ducks. (laughs) That's also why I have ducks. I love the idea that there was a a group of people in Japan, like, you know, 2000 years ago or something who just lived below the ducks. So they were like, the Tanakas were like, Let's call them the Kamoshitas. <laughs> well, it's also if you, I post a lot of duck reels. Like I didn't know you could be a duck Instagrammer, but it's a thing. I was like, man, I should have been a duck Instagrammer. Well, <laughs> I think you're doing a brilliant job where you are actually, Kate. So that's, um, and we will link to these down below. So katekamoshita.com, learning.compass. And I've just joined your um 
subscribers. Subscribe. I've just subscribed to your um, Instagram because that's something that happened last week was you were invited because you have so many followers to monetize your Instagram and to be able to have subscribers. So this is like a really big kind of thing for Instagram business. And so that's another thing. You're a brilliant businesswoman as well. And that we haven't even touched on that. But, um, you know, that that's for another show, perhaps. I would say that um, the subscription is new, but it, it will help me. I will encourage you all to subscribe and that will get you access to a group chat or extra content and extra talks like this or more information. So it's only 99 cents a month. Please do. Uh, I'm still working out what my subscribers would want, but I promise you lots of good stuff in store. Amazing. So I always ask my final question, Kate, and that is, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? Well, I think you and I have similar taglines because mine is find your path. Yeah. And yours is there's many ways to lead a life. And I also often say education is not one size fits all. And I don't believe in any one form of education as well. I think so. I feel we align on that, that it just means for me, it just means do what makes you. I feel people get so caught up in should be that they forget that being happy is what matters. So just find your path. Thank you, Kate. Well, you make me very happy and I'm so happy that our paths crossed and you you came to me and we've been able to do some collaboration together and that you so graciously, now that you're super famous, <laughs> agreed to appear on my podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled. So thanks everyone for listening. That was a really fascinating journey through a life of um, addiction, recovery, ADHD, anxiety, fantastic artistic parents, um, renovating a game-changing renovation of a of an area and preservation of of homes, and then up here having children and becoming an influencer, and I mean that in the best kind of way. Although I don't have anything against influencers, um, being part of the Red Lady Rebel Club and <laughs> and um, recreating rules, um, Ask a Neurodivergent was another little series that Kate was yeah. starting to do, like a- finding ask out a neurotypical. What... Sorry, Ask a Neurotypical. Wait, that's right. Ask. A I need more neuro. Neurotypicals, please. Yes. If you're neurotypical, so reach she's, out. she's she's in search of neurotypical people to answer questions like an email, a bill comes in. What do you do? <laughs> it's amazing, you guys. Yes, you're like, it. how do you even do that? Anyway, so we've talked. To, we've got. We've touched on science like dopamine, serotonin, adrenaline, etc. And there's just been so many juicy things that has come out of here. Um, Kate, you're an absolute light in the world. I'm so delighted that you've been able to bring all the stuff you have to the fore over the last year. It's it's an incredible amount of stuff that you do. You have an incredible capacity to draw people people in and to find the right people to help you to move forward with this neurodivergence and to make the best of it and also to be of great service to the world but also a really shrewd business person um i'm incredibly proud to know you and it's a a real delight to watch you developing so thank you so much for being here thanks everybody for listening i believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and i hope you've enjoyed this one bye Well, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Kate, for sharing all your intelligence, your experience and being an advocate for unmasking ADHD and helping people to get the diagnosis they need to live their life in a more full way. It's really remarkable. 
we learned so many aspects of ADHD today, all were reminded of them, all against that backdrop of Kate's fascinating story and journey. And she's so generous in her unmasking and she's so generous in how much she shares there, from alcoholism to rejection sensitivity to how her diagnosis was delayed because of living in Europe or because there are other ways that her executive function had to kick in thus delaying her diagnosis. I'm really always interested in looking for the great joys of having ADHD because I know it brings me so much breadth and depth that um, neurotypical people maybe don't have access to. On the other hand, Kate does remind me that it's a disability and that we do have to work harder to be able to work in this neurotypical society and also to, to mask and to just be okay in the world. She's just so generous. She's so intelligent. She's got such a breadth and depth of knowledge and experience about the subject of neurodiversity. And we really only touched on it here. But most of all, thank you, Kate, for sharing your story with us. The vulnerability and the unapologetic way that you talk about what happened to you is an absolute delight. And it really is the peak of humanity to be able to do that. And I am so grateful. Thank you.